Welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. We are your hosts. I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. And today's episode is Legal Shakespeare. Shakespeare and the law and the courts and all that stuff. Strap in, kiddies, because we're going to be talking about some gruesome stuff. Yeah, this is this is a lot, you guys. There's a lot of information, so get yourself a cup of tea or a coffee or a Coke or a bowl or a cocktail and listen up. Yeah, also, spoiler alert, um, we're going to find out that Shakespeare was kind of a naughty boy. Uh, Shakespeare got in trouble with the law more than once, and we're going to talk about that. That's right. But we also have the wonderful side of Shakespeare and the law, like how he actually knew all this shit, even though there's lots of people that don't think he did. Right. Well, as we've discussed in the past, that's one of the reasons why people, why there's this ridiculous cottage industry of Oxfordians, et cetera, that don't think that Shakespeare wrote his plays, because the knowledge of the law that he displays in in his works, not only his plays, but the sonnets as well, uh, is so extraordinary that people think he must, that whoever wrote it must have had, uh, you know, a legal education. And we know that he had, well, actually, I should say, we're pretty sure that he did have some education at the grammar school in Stratford, although there are no records of anyone going to that school. Uh, we we do know pretty certainly that he never went to university. That's right. Um, or, or to the inns at court, which uh, were the basically the law schools uh, in London. So we know he didn't go there. At least there are no records of it, and it seems very unlikely. So it is, you know, it's pretty amazing how much he knew about the law. Yeah, absolutely. So, Owen, do you want to give us a little uh, background of, you know, what law and courts and stuff was like yeah, in the Elizabethan era? Before we talk about the the, uh, the the legal references throughout Shakespeare's work, we just want to give you a little bit of an overview of what, um, you know, the legal system was like in Elizabethan England, cr- how crime and punishment was thought of, how it was administered, and that sort of thing. So, English English common law, as it was known, uh, which protected the individual's life, liberty, and property, had been in effect uh, since 1189, and Queen Elizabeth uh, was a big believer in it. The law was seen as an institution that not only protected individual rights, but validated the authority of the monarch. That was really important. So the social order was a big deal, obviously, and that began with God, really, and the monarch, whoever it was, under God, and then the nobility, and down and down and down to every individual, and it was thought that the social order worked best when everyone knew their place. Um, Every person and thing in the universe had a designated place and purpose, right? Um, So, Crimes that threatened the social order were considered extremely dangerous. Uh, the big, big ones were heresy, um, treason, and murder. Those are the big three, right? And those were all punishable by death. Uh, execution methods for those serious crimes were uh, designed to be as gruesome as possible. Now, we've, we've talked about this in, in the past, right? Oh, yeah. Obviously. Uh, but it's super important. Heretics, for instance, were burned at the stake. So, yeah, that was the punishment for heresy. Uh, traitors were, well, we've talked about the hanging, drawing, and quartering, right? I told you it would be gruesome. And we, we you know, I, I know we've mentioned this before, but just quickly, hanging, drawing, and quartering was pretty bad. It was um, delicious. <laughs> yes, people, people would be hanged briefly, but not hanged to death, right? They would be hanged for a little while and then cut down while they were still alive. And then usually their dick would be chopped off, they would be disemboweled and all of that, their junk and their and their entrails would be burned in front of them. And then they would be chopped in four and pulled apart by horses. And Yeah, because, you know, they wanted to make sure they were dead. Right. <laughs> well, but the, I mean, the, but the point is, the point is, these were designed to be that gruesome. And also this was, these were public displays um, because they wanted to discourage Treason, obviously. Of course, so. of course. Now, I'm, I'm, and we, we talk about it a lot. And to, to be fair, although public executions were very, very common in Shakespeare's time, and certainly uh, the chopped off heads of people would be on pikes all over the place. And, you know, it's a very obviously oppressive environment in which to work. Yeah, I um, mean, where do you think they got it in The Handmaid's Tale, people? Right, exactly. Those those particularly gruesome crimes were, re- were pretty much reserved for the most heinous offenses and the, the and the reason for that is because they were meant to deter treason. As we've said before, we're living in an era in which the Pope has made it legal to murder the Queen. 
So, you know, she she had she had an axe to grind. Uh, But it's also true that convicted traitors who were of noble birth were usually executed in less, shall we say, undignified ways. Right. Mostly they would just be hanged or sometimes they would have their heads cut off like those two wives of Henry VIII that were beheaded. Right. Uh, but it was also this was meant to demonstrate the authority of the court. And we won't go into the whole history of everything because we've done it a lot of times. But there was all the back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism in Shakespeare's day. By the time Shakespeare is writing, Elizabeth is on the throne and her grandfather, Henry, or sorry, her father, Henry, had had, had broken with the Catholic Church and founded the Church of England. And then her sister, Mary, went back to Catholicism. So it was a very, very very fucked up time. And because of this, Elizabeth's government became extremely wary of dissent and developed an extensive intelligence system to gather information about potential conspiracies against the Queen. And we were talking last time about Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare's contemporary, being part of that spy network, right? So it was very pervasive. Uh, And when conspirators were arrested, they were usually tortured to reveal the details about the plot. But it's important to note, since we're talking about the law, that the the, the torture was actually regulated by law. Well, we talked about this, didn't we, uh, with Christopher Marlowe and Thomas Kidd last week? That's right. That's right. Torture was not allowed without the Queen's express authorization and was permitted only in the presence of officials who were in charge of the questioning. Right. So there was, in fact, a system. You couldn't just randomly torture people. Right. You actually had had to have authority to do so. Now, they would torture you in pretty fucked up ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But this isn't like quite Game of Thrones. And, you know. Right. Right. What's his name? Reese. Reese. What was his name? The one that got eaten by the dogs. Right. Yes. People. Yeah. People weren't flayed alive, you know, randomly. Um. But now, but murder, like lower level murder that wasn't, that didn't have a treasonous aspect to it was usually punished by simple hanging. So that, you know, is better than, I mean, I'd rather be hanged than hanged, drawn and quartered. Let's put it that way. Right. Right. Because what Um, if you're not dead after the hanging? Right. But it's, well, exactly. And that's when they disembowel you and do all of that other, that's when the fun really begins. Um, But women, women who murdered their husbands were burned at the stake. Uh, Robbery. (laughs) Theft, rape, and arson were also capital offenses, so you'd be killed for that. Um, and and if you were accused of the crime, you did have a right to a trial, but legal protections were very, very minimal. Uh, now, it's interesting to note, because this coincides with Shakespeare's career, that crime in England actually reached unusually high levels in the 1590s when Shakespeare was really getting going. Uh, it was pro- there was a big downturn in the economy in the 1590s, which probably uh, fueled this rise in crime because it increased the number of people living in poverty. And most property crime during Elizabethan times was committed by young people, poor people, and homeless people. Well, I mean, so- realistically, who would have done it? Who else would have exactly. done it, right? Exactly. I mean, it's 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 going to happen no matter where you are, no matter what time you're in, right? Yeah, I don't think uh, people nowadays that are like, you know breaking into people's houses and stealing should have like millions of dollars in the bank either. Uh, I don't think so. I think you are correct. So Parliament responded to this rise in crime by instituting the poor laws, right, which actually made begging illegal, among other things. Well, it is Um, now in a lot of places anyway. True. Uh, A law actually earlier in 1572 classified several categories of self-employed people as vagrants, including unlicensed healers, palm readers, and tinkers. Also, importantly, actors. I was just going to say, put us in that list. Players. They were so as such, they risked whipping or other physical punishment unless they found a master or employer. So this was a class of people known as masterless men. Right. And this is one of the reasons why companies like Shakespeare's company sought uh, patronage, why you see Lord Strange's men or the Lord Chamberlain's men or the Lord Admiral's men, because they had a master. Right. They they were complying with the law by having an official employer or master. So they wouldn't be classed. That's right. They wouldn't be classed as masterless men, which could get you whipped or thrown in jail. Um, These poor laws, however, they completely failed. (laughs) <laughs> they did shocker they, they didn't deter <laughs> they did not deter crime at all now this is also be, this is important this is part of the legal system uh between 50, 1546 and 1553 five quote-unquote hospitals or houses of corrections opened in london 
And these were called, the Elizabethans called these places bridewells. And these were places where orphans, street children, the physically and mentally ill, vagrants, prostitutes, uh, and other kinds of criminals could be confined. Inmates of the bridewell had not necessarily committed a crime, but they were confined because of their marginal social status. That's again, like if you're a masterless man, right? Uh, also, uh, if you had debt, you could be thrown into prison. Debtor's De- prison, which debtor's was around prison. for a mm-hmm. long, long time, including in the United States. Um, but it's interesting. These places were called houses of correction, which and they grew and grew and grew in, in later years. And that reflected the growing interest in the idea that the state should aim to correct criminals' behavior instead of just imposing punishment on them, right? So, there, so here's a question for you. So that's yeah. very interesting to me because at what point... Uh, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but at what point in history did they make mental hospitals and prisons that they were separated from each other? That's an excellent question that I honestly don't know the answer to. But what I do know is that this is where the idea of like doing more than just throwing a motherfucker in jail, you know, to punish him uh, started going like how, the, the, the key phrase here is houses of correction later on. And I'm not sure at what time this was, you know, the term penitentiary came mm-hmm. into being. And of course, penitentiary means a place that you go to become penitent. Right. So, but, but, but originally jails in the 16th century were places where suspects were kept while awaiting trial or where convicts waited for their day of execution. Right. Um, and convicted criminals didn't receive sentences to serve time in prison, right? Punishments were usually the result or, or punishments or fines if you committed a small offense um, or physical punishment for more serious crimes. Like we were talking about Ben Johnson, remember, another yeah. one of Shakespeare's contemporaries who uh, mur- who didn't murder, but killed a guy in a duel and escaped any kind of serious punishment. But he did get branded on the thumb so that people would know that he had killed a guy. That kind of thing happened a lot. Uh, now, here's here's uh, something that I found that I think is really interesting. We th- obviously a lot of these punishments are super gruesome and horrible, and it would be really scary to live in this time. But the English actually saw themselves in the Elizabethan Jacobian era as being relatively progressive. In fact, here is a quote from a writer named William Harrison, who lived in the early, uh, well, in the mid 16th century, about crime and punishment. He said, to use torment also or questioned by pain and torture in these common cases with us is greatly abhorred, sith we are found always to be such as despise death and yet abhor to be tormented, right? So they saw themselves as progressives because um, other societies were much more barbarous. Uh, For instance, in Holland, the Spanish agent who assassinated the Dutch Protestant uh, rebel leader, William of Orange, was sentenced to be tortured to death by treason, and it took 13 days for them to torture him to death. Ugh. Ugh. 13 days. Oh, my God. Uh, it, and in other parts of the world, in, in the early modern era, you have terrible things like in, in Japan which was much more civilized than much of Europe at this time, methods for execution for serious crimes included boiling, they were ah! crucifying people, and yeah, but boiling them to death. And, and in Southeast Asia, criminals were often sentenced to be trampled to death by elephants. Yeah, I knew that, actually, <laughs> weirdly enough. Poor elephants. So, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it. Do it. Um, and actually, this is interesting, too. Uh, many, many prisoners got lesser punishments than the law allowed. This is a quote from the Oxford Illustrated History of Tudor and Stuart Britain. Many fewer people were indicted than were accused. Many fewer were convicted than indicted. And no more than half of those who could have faced the gallows actually did so. Charges were frequently downgraded so that the criminal, though punished, did not have to be executed. Uh, um, by the way, I so, just so looked, they were relatively progressive. Yeah, I mean to to answer the question I asked you, it looks like it wasn't until the early 1800s that things were. Sp- ah. yeah, yeah. You don't you you don't want to have mental health issues in Shakespeare's London. Oh fuck no, no. Um. So how many? So you know, we talked about the fact that Shakespeare showed an incredible. Um, understanding of the law. And so let's talk about how many times he makes reference to it in his plays. So many. So in 37 plays, uh, he uses the word law 
approximately, give or take, 200 times in 176 speeches in 36 of the plays. But what about the word lawyers? Lawyers only appears about 14 times in 10 different plays. The word attorney or attorneys appear another 12 times in 10 plays. There's not a single use of the word corporation, but he does use the word corporate twice, once in Henry IV, Part Two, and once in Time and of Athens, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it the way we think of corporations these days. So. Um, so perhaps the most famous Shakespearean line involving lawyers was Dick the Butcher in Henry VI, Part Two, Act Four. Everybody scene knows two. this one. The first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> so. Um, the second one I have is from, uh, act one, scene four of King Lear. It's Earl of Kent. And, uh, Kent says, well, it's the fool actually. Kent says, this is nothing fool. And the fool says, then tis like the breath of an unfeed lawyer. You gave me nothing for it. Can you make no use of nothing, nuncle? Love that. Oh, that fool. You yeah. I, I also want to mention something in terms of the quotes, because I have a I pulled a bunch of quotes from Shakespeare's plays about law as well. And there's one thing to be aware of if you're looking for this kind of thing. It's the word court. That's right. Like, for instance, one quote that came up for me uh, is a, I won't read the whole thing, but it's a it's a conversation between Touchstone and Corin in As You Like It that That's starts right. when Touchstone says to Corin, Wast ever in court, Shepherd? And they go on about court, court, court. Uh, and that comes up when you search for this kind of thing. But it doesn't mean a law court in this case. Uh, he's referring to the Queen's court. That's right? right. Her courtiers and the nobility that were surrounding her. So you have to be careful when you're looking at Shakespeare and you see the word court to, di to distinguish between a law court. Because sometimes it means a law court, but often it means the queen or the monarch's court. Yeah, probably even more. I would think it means the the queen's court or you know yeah. to woo somebody in fact right, when i right. saw that when i when saw that verb. come up yeah when i saw that come up on that same document that i found as you did uh it pissed me off because i was like you should know better yeah they should yeah, yeah. um but anyway you know it, it does seem that shakespeare had a rather dim view of lawyers in uh richard the third act four scene four he has queen elizabeth say windy attorneys to their client woes airy succeeders of intestate joys poor breathing orators of miseries let them have scope though what they do impart help not all yet do they ease the heart <laughs> one of the uses of attorneys mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well also going back to henry the sixth um a messenger to the king says all scholars lawyers courtiers gentlemen they call false caterpillars and intend their death that's right that's he's right. referring to the rebels again i believe that's right yeah um, in As You Like It, Act 4, Scene 1, uh, Jacques says to Rosalind, I have neither the scholar's melancholy, which is emulation, nor the musician's, which is fantastical, nor the courtier's, which is proud, nor the soldier's, which is ambitious, nor the lawyer's, which is politic. Um, pretty famous uh, from Hamlet 5.1, when Hamlet is talking to Horatio. Uh, he says, why may not that be the skull of a lawyer? Where be his quiddities now, his quillities, his cases, his tenures, and his tricks? Why does he suffer this mad knave now to knock him about the sconce with a dirty shovel and will not tell him of his action of battery? Hmm. And he goes on. And when they're talking about the skull, of course, the famous skull in Hamlet. Mm -hmm. um, Falstaff to Prince Hal in Henry the Fourth, Part One, says, Yea, and so used it that it were not here apparent that thou art heir apparent. But I prithee, sweet wag, shall there be gallows standing in England when thou art king? And resolution thus fobbed as it is with the rusty curb of old father antic the law? Do not thou, when thou art king, hang a thief. Going back to what you were talking about. And I, yeah, hanging a thief. And I just want to interject here, even though it doesn't it doesn't really have that much to do with the law. This is one of my favorite quotes ever because talk about like lengthy foreshadowing. Yeah. When when Falstaff tells Hal or begs him not to hang a thief when he's king, two plays later, two plays later, right. in Henry V, Hal does just that when he is in France and he's the king. And Bardolph, who is one of 
Falstaff's buddies and That's also right. one of Hal's old buddies uh, is caught stealing and and and, and Hal has him hanged. Um, and the, the amazing thing about that is that when Shakespeare wrote uh, Henry IV one, I think Henry IV one is like Jesus Christ, like maybe fifteen ninety five, and yeah. he doesn't write. He doesn't. He probably didn't even know he was going to write a sequel, much less um, Henry V, which would be a sequel to the sequel. He didn't write it for another five years. So anybody that thinks that Shakespeare was writing casually and didn't give a shit. Think about this kind of thing. Yeah. He's playing a long game all the time. Yeah, what a callback. You know what I mean? I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's one from Henry the Sixth, Part Two. Uh, Warwick says to the lords, Between two hawks, which flies the higher pitch? Between two dogs, which hath the deeper mouth? Between two blades, which bears the better temper? Between two horses, which doth bear him best? Between two girls, which hath the merriest eye? I have, perhaps, some shallow spirit of judgment. But in these nice, sharp quillets of the law, good faith, I am no wiser than a daw. I love that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that that's one of the very first plays Shakespeare ever wrote. Second so part there you go. The yep. And we should, another callback for us. That's a play that he probably wrote with another playwright. Speaking of Shakespeare's contemporaries, which we were That's talking right. about last time, his early plays and his later plays. Yep. Uh, in Henry the Sixth, Part Two, as well, the messenger says to Henry the Sixth, oh, "I think I quoted this that? one already." Oh, you did. Yes. I'm Other a scholars, dirty bitch. lawyers, courtiers, gent. Yeah, fuck you. Um, <laughs> ah, comedy of errors. Dromeo of Syracuse says, "There's no time for a man to recover his hair that grows bald by nature." And Antiphilus of Syracuse says, "May he not do it by fine and recovery." And Romeo of Syracuse says, yes, to pay a fine for a periwig and recover the lost hair of another man. Um, Constance says to Cardinal Pandolf and King John, Act 3, Scene 1, when law can do no right, let it be lawful that law bar no wrong. Law cannot give my child his kingdom here, for he that holds his kingdom holds the law. Yeah, it's interesting that Shakespeare seems pretty wary of lawyers and the law. And I, can I read this next one? I think we both have. Please this, right? do. This is, this, this is Canton King Lear. Yeah. Uh, and he's I think he's describing Oswald at this point. And he, he calls him a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted-stocking knave, a lily-livered, action-taking knave. And what's interesting to me about that, uh, and again, very hard to read a biography by the works of people as we've discussed before, but he's, he's object. He's one of the things that he's accusing Oswald of being is an action taking name. In other words, somebody who sues people a lot and Shakespeare loved to sue people. Yeah. But remember also when we talked about insult, when we did insult Shakespeare, knave is like one of the worst possible yeah. insults. And he calls him a knave three times in that like two lines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he also, like, in that same speech, I think that he says he's going to kill him and paint a shithouse with his blood. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and here's a perfect example of, I think, of how Shakespeare felt about the law. And Pericles, the fisherman, says, help, master, help. Here's a fish hangs in the net like a poor man's right in the law. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes. Nope. Um, there's a ton of them, obviously, in Measure for Measure, because that's oh all about the law. Um, I like this one. Uh, Duke Vincenzo says, we have strict statutes and most biting laws, the needful bits and curbs to headstrong weeds, which for this 19 years we have let slip, even like an o'ergrown lion in a cave that goes not out to prey. Oh God! I don't don't make me go down the rabbit hole about this asshole and how he that won't take responsibility. But yeah, you know, I mean, he doesn't. There's there's endless, endless, endless legal stuff. The the two plays probably that have the most legal stuff in them are Measure for Measure and, and Merchant, Merchant, from, Merchant of yeah, Venice, yeah. which obviously has the famous trial scene. Um, and those, I mean, it like just to pick quotes from those plays is almost impossible because they're so concerned with the law, both of those plays that like, it's pretty much the whole fucking play. Yeah. I love this line. This is actually one of my favorite quotes of Shakespeare, especially uh, 
when I read stuff in the New York Times or the Washington Post, but it's is a it's a Angelo de Isabella on in two two and measure for measure, and he says the law hath not been dead though it hath slept. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of how I feel about the Supreme Court now. Right. Um, Unfortunately, as as so often in Shakespeare, it's coming from a complete hypocrite. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, as for you, whate'er you say, my false or ways your true, he also says to her later on. Yeah, he does. He does. That's that play. Uh, you know, I would love to get a chance to truly unpack that play. In oh, let me tell you, I've directed that play. And I know. You know, it, it, it's very challenging. It's very challenging, but it is, there There are a few, there are, it's really, it's actually one of my very favorite Shakespeare plays, even though it has that dicey ending that we've discussed endlessly. Um, but it's so, I mean, it it's fucked up that play in the best possible way. Yeah, I love it, it is, it is. Um, and as we said, there's a bunch in The Merchant of Venice. Um, so here's Bassanio's in Act 3, Scene 2, saying, The world is still deceived with ornament. In law, what plea so tainted and corrupt, but being seasoned with a gracious voice, obscures the show of evil? I love that one. And then, of course, there's Portia in Merchant of Venice 4-1. A pound of that same merchant's flesh is thine. The court awards it, and the law doth give it. Right. And it's, you know, what's really interesting to me, just because we have the, we, we're, we're pulling a lot of the same quotes from like just this, a regular old search, which any, anybody can do. Uh, they, they leave out, they don't have any of the quality of mercy is not strained. Her, her famous, famous speech in the, in the trial scene, which is all about the law. And it's it, about how mercy, how mercy tempers just like if everybody got justice, you know, it would it would be a terrible world. But mercy is also part of the law. Well, it's funny that you say that, Owen, because when I go over all the times that Shakespeare has been quoted in an opinion in the Supreme Court cases, the uh-huh. very last one that I have quotes at length from that speech. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So yeah. let's so, so talk about that a little bit. You, ha- you This is fascinating to me, the, the Supreme Court tie in. OK, so. The first time uh, there was uh, Shakespeare quoted in any kind of judicial opinion, it was the Supreme Court of Texas in 1873 that quoted from As You Like It in a decision that upheld the defendant's indictment for theft of one head of cattle worth $12. Very first time ever, right? But soon Shakespeare was being invoked by other state Supreme Courts, including the Supreme Court of Missouri in 1890 and 1894. Um, The Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, first invoked Shakespeare in 1893. Now, sometimes those quotations are intended to contribute directly to the argument in a judicial opinion, but sometimes it seems like they just throw in quotes from Shakespeare uh, to have no more purpose than to sort of adorn an opinion with fancy words that like impresses the reader, you know? Um, oh, why not? Yeah. But uh, the list is short. There are only 15 items since the one case, uh, Magone versus Heller in 1893. Uh, it's not even until 1946 that the second Shakespeare quote uh, is encountered in wow. Magone. Yeah, right. Isn't that amazing? In Magone versus Heller in 1893, the first one, the question was whether the tariff acts exemption from customs duty of substances, quote, expressly used for manure, end quote, applied to an article which, when imported, was invoiced as, quote, manure salts. Now, the opinion. What, what, what are manure salts? I manures. Well, I mean, expressly used for manure, manure salts is probably stuff that they used on top of uh, like to grow stuff, you know, like they would use uh, manure as a fertilizer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Anytime manure is involved, you, you have my full attention. I'm here. I'm listen. So, so the opinion that was written by justice gray at the time considered the meaning to be attached to the word expressly as used in the tariff act. So, in, for example, so in Webster's, the and I looked this up, the definition of expressly is in an express manner, in direct terms, with distinct purpose, particularly as, for example, a book written expressly for the young, 
right? Okay. And the okay. further illustration that he used is from Shakespeare, I am sent expressly to your lordship. So that was uh -huh. the second. Uh -huh. So besides Webster's, he used it from Shakespeare, pointing out that this messenger was sent to your lordship, nowhere else. This is this was my purpose. This for this only reason, right? That's right. So, so really, he's just using he's invoking Shakespeare's syntax more than anything else. Absolutely right. That's right. Um, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in a 1989 uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, her uh, uh, her opinion or her dissension actually contained a quotation from Shakespeare. Uh, the majority opinion in the same case by Justice Blackmun referred to the quotation and he expressed doubts as to its usefulness. But the case was Browning Ferris versus Kelko Disposal. And it was concerned with the question of whether the, quote, excessive fines, end quote, clause of the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which is excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted, applied to punitive damage, damages that would be assessed by a jury in a civil suit in favor of a private party. So the decision was held that it did not right? That right. the clause applies to criminal cases and not to civil suits, except maybe suits in which the government is the plaintiff and receives the benefit of the award. Isn't that fucking funny? Oh, no, it only applies to this suit unless it's us, unless it's the government that would be getting the money. It must be some lawyers that thought of that. Yeah, right. So, um, it, so Trying to find out what the meaning of the word fines was, as, uh, as used in the late 18th century, which was when it was written, Browning Ferris evoked opinions from the justices that were these explorations into legal history, right? So what was the word, when used in the Eighth Amendment, intended to apply only to criminal cases, right? The majority of the court concluded that the word fines was so limited, but Justice Sandra Day O'Connor had a dissenting opinion. She said the Eighth Amendment was derived verbatim from the English Bill of Rights of 1689. That English law, she said, applied to punitive damages in civil suits as well as fines in criminal cases. Right. Historically, the argument ran punitive damages in civil suits were a form of immersement and the word fines as a generic term included immersements. And as witness, the opinion quoted from the speech of Prince Aeschylus in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in uh -huh. Act 3, Scene 1. And he says, I have an interest in your hate's proceeding. My blood for your rude brawls doth lie a-bleeding. But I'll immerse you with so strong a fine that you shall all repent the loss of mine. So, as used in the opinion... This is intended to contribute to the ascertainment of the meaning of the word that is found in the Constitution. Wow. Isn't that Good cool? for you, Sandra Day O'Connor. Right? I love that. You know, it's interesting. It seems like, well, my second uh, example is Justice Marshall Thurgood. Oh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh -huh. Yep. In a dissenting opinion in United States versus Watson. So now this case involved the, the question of the constitutionality of an arrest without a warrant for a felony not committed in the presence of the arresting officer. So upholding the arrest, the majority of the Supreme Court decided that the Fourth Amendment, which is the no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, blah, 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 um, accepted the ancient common law rule that a peace officer was permitted to arrest without a warrant for a felony not committed in his presence if there was reasonable ground for making the arrest. But Thurgood Marshall disagreed. He said, to apply this rule blindly today, however, makes as much sense as attempting to interpret Hamlet's admonition to Ophelia, get thee to a nunnery in Hamlet Act C, Scene 1, because it is without with it is without understanding the meaning of Hamlet's words in the context of the age, right? Mm -hmm. He said the fact that felony at common law and a felony today bear only slight resemblance to each other with the result that the rel relevance of the common law rule of arrest to the modern interpretation of the Constitution is also minimal. 
Right, because nunnery could mean brothel. That's right. It, right. It was Elizabethan slang for a house yeah. of prostitution. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, obviously, there's a double entendre there in Shakespeare, but I, I get Marshall's point. Yes. And he finishes by saying the law, according to William Shakespeare, has received the endorsement of the Supreme Court of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Thurgood. Right. Um, the third one I have is uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist writing the opinion of the court in United States versus Apfelbaum. Uh, he commended Shakespeare for his knowledge of the law in a footnote um, who actually the relationship to the text of the opinion doesn't really kind of match, but he does cite Shakespeare for the basic principle that intent alone unaccompanied by an act should not be held a crime. And he says he uses um, as his sound legal doctrine, Measure for Measure Act 5, Scene 1, his acts did not overtake his bad intent and must be buried but as an intent that perished by the way. Thoughts are not subject. Intents are merely thoughts. You know, and he... So, you know, so in other words, no thought crime. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, these Supremes, they, they like their Shakespeare, don't they? They love their Shakespeare. And, and you know, a, as I said to you, I have a, a, a special little thing to read to you at the end for the soon-to-be-retired, uh, as kind of an homage to the soon-to-be-retired Justice Stephen Breyer. Right, that's right. I'm, I'm, I haven't heard this, and I'm, I, I'm dying to hear it. But also, we should, we should mention, since we're talking about the Supreme Court, we don't need to go into this in detail, but it, it, there are a couple of, I mean, the Supremes are more into Shakespeare than you might think. And in fact, at one time, and this is not an episode about this, but uh, maybe we'll talk about it another time, they actually had a trial. Uh, it wasn't like, it was sort of extracurricular uh, to hear the case of the Oxfordians versus the Stratfordians. Uh, and they, I, I misremember what year it was, but they ruled in favor of the Stratfordians, did they not? It was 1987, and you can actually find it on C-SPAN. Like right, I'm, do sure, a I'm, sure you can, I'm sure you can find it all over YouTube as well. Yeah, yeah, but they and, ruled and for who Shakespeare. Are the, who were the two Supreme Court justices that were known to be Oxfordians? I think it was Scalia and uh, uh, John Paul Stevens. John Paul Stevens, yeah. They're both, they're both uh, Scalia's gone now, of course, but they were both died in the will Oxfordians. Um for what and listen, let's let's not go there. But uh, since we're mentioning the Supreme Court, it's very interesting that they actually heard a case about Shakespeare versus De well, Beer. Per, I mean, they purposely set it up as a moot court. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you know, a lot of people. I mean, just a couple of quotes from people about how what Shakespeare's knowledge of the law. Um, Cushman K. Davis says that Shakespeare's, quote, persistent and correct use of law terms prompted the conjecture that he must have studied in an attorney's office. Uh, a lot of people think that maybe he was a law clerk. Uh, another, another scholar, Richard Grant White, says that no dramatist of the time, not even Francis Beaumont, who was a younger son of a judge of the common pleas, used legal phrases with Shakespeare's readiness and exactness. Legal phrases flow from his pen as part of his vocabulary and parcel of his thought. Absolutely right. And, you know, so that leads into my next opinion. It's Justice Scalia, right? And he uh -huh. uses, right, he uses a quotation from Shakespeare to show that time-honored standards and principles of moral conduct support a certain interpretation or application of the law. For example, a constitutional provision, right? Uh, you know, that's keeping in view that, that keeping in line with the view that law and great literature do have a symbiotic relationship, that great works of literature can contribute to the quest for justice. So this was his opinion in Coy versus Iowa. The question was whether the confrontation clause of the Sixth Amendment, which is in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him, blah, 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 could be interpreted in a prosecution for alleged child abuse to permit the complaining witnesses to testify at trial behind a screen that prevented face-to-face -face contact with the accused. Now, Scalia, speaking for the majority, held that Iowa, the Iowa procedure was unconstitutional. And he quoted from uh, Richard II, Richard saying, 
Act 1, Scene 1, then call them to our presence face to face, and frowning, brow to brow, ourselves will hear the accuser and the accused freely speak. So, to explain, in the words of Scalia, we have cited this to illustrate the meaning of confrontation and both the antiquity and currency of the human feeling that a criminal trial is not just unless one can confront his accusers face to face. Wow. You have, even though he was an Oxfordian, he, he clearly knew the works really well, oh, yeah. uh, as did all of these people, which is super impressive. And it's not surprising because ju of just how deeply concerned Shakespeare seems to have been with the law and how and how much he knew it. And I will I have to say, not that I would ever dream of even considering the Oxfordian position seriously for a minute, but it is true that I mean, and of course, Shakespeare shows pretty deep knowledge of medicine of, of soldiership of a lot of different things that he probably that he couldn't have you know mm -hmm. been involved with professionally oh my god yeah uh, and 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 clearly he picked it up because he was a genius but it is the legal thing the the references and the and the the profundity of his knowledge about the law is is pretty amazing it's really really remarkable it is um Oh, I love this one. This is uh, Levy versus the state of Louisiana. Um, it was held up with four in the majority, three justices dissenting, that a statute giving legitimate but not illegitimate children of a deceased parent the right to sue for wrongful death unconstitutionally discriminated against the illegitimate child dependent on the deceased parent for support. So, Justice Douglas in his majority opinion, footnotes these lines from Edmund in King Lear, Act 1, Scene 2. Why, bastard, wherefore base? When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind is generous, and my shape is true, as honest, madam's issue. Why brand they us as base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? Now, Justice Harlan, in writing the dissension to that opinion, was not overwhelmed. He said the state had discretion in drawing lines in a case like this, and that he may even, like Shakespeare's Edmund, the, 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 the illegitimate child, have spent his life contriving treachery against the family. Right. Supposing that the Bard had any views on the law, law of legitimacy, they might have been more easily discerned from Edmund's character than from the words he utters in defense of the only thing he cares for, which is himself. Which is himself, clearly. Right. right. Um, wow. That... This is crazy shit, isn't it? Yeah, like, that's, I was that's, blown I mean, away. It's, it is. It's deep shit. Should we talk about maybe Shakespeare's brushes with the law himself? We should, although I still have plenty of these Supreme Court cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we can we can pop back and forth. How's that? Yeah. Well, let's see. There's there is there are a lot of these. I'm just gonna I'm gonna go quick as a bunny. Um, so there's Tyson versus Arizona. Uh, a divided court upheld Al Arizona's felony murder statute. With <laughs> they quoted. Um, Lancelot, if a merchant's Venice, yes, truly look you for the sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. Doesn't even make mm. any sense. Um, well, our favorite character, Lancelot Gabo. I know. Um, and then there's uh, Milkovich versus Lorraine Journal Company. That was a defamation suit brought by a high school coach against a newspaper publisher in which uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist observed since the latter half of the 16th century, the common law has afforded a cause of action for damages to a person's reputation by the publication of false and defamatory statements. And the thing he quotes is Iago. From Othello 3-3, uh -oh. three, three. good name in man and woman, dear my lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something, nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Which is one of my absolute, it's one of my favorite things I ever got to say on a stage, actually, and uh, one of my favorite quotes in all of Shakespeare, because it really is, it's incredibly true. It's a profound observation, but it's coming from the worst human being that Shakespeare ever yeah. imagined. Yeah. And he's, and he's in the course of doing terrible, terrible things, but it just goes to show you how, how people can use the truth for evil purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Scalia in Johnson versus Transportation Agency um, uses this quote 
basically to to point out that he's dissenting from the court's opinion that an affirmative action statute applicable to road dispatchers was constitutional and constitutionally applied, right? And he mm-hmm. says the majority emphasizes, although it is meaningful, that no persons are automatically excluded from consideration. All are able to have their qualifications weighed against those of other applicants. One is reminded of the exchange from <laughs> King Henry the Fourth, Part One, Act Three, Scene One, when Glendower says, "I can call spirits from the vastly deep," and Hotspur replies, "Why, so can I, or so can any man." But will they come when you do call for them? So I love that. Yeah, Hotspur's um, taking the piss. Exactly. Colorado versus Connolly. Stevens uh, uses uh, the lines from Lady Macbeth. Uh, what will these hair, hands ne'er be clean? Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Um uh, In Walters versus National Association of Radiation Survivors. So weird. Uh, Justice Stevens, again, uh, uses the famous line, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. In Sigma Financial Court versus Gotham Insurance Company, Judge Andrew Guilford granted the, the plaintiff's motion and uses Romeo and Juliet's in love arose by any other name may smell just as sweet. And then he adds, but in lawsuits, naming precisely the right party can mean everything, which I did, just did, can I ask you, did, did he say just as sweet? Is that did, is that what he says? This is what he quoted. Yeah. Wow. So he got it wrong. There's no well, just in that. Quote. Well, because because he used it to add on to it. But in lawsuits, naming precisely the right party can mean everything. Did he, did he put the just in brackets at least? No. Nope, so he misquoted it. So he did. Meh, F. <laughs> F. And there's just two more. The twelfth is Lafondix versus Koppelman. This is a breach of contract action. The federal district court denied each other's parties motions for sanctions against the other. Uh, but the court orders that denied the parties dueling motions concluded by citing and quoting from Romeo and Juliet, a plague on both your houses. <laughs> there you go. And then finally in United States versus Barry, this is really interesting. And this is the one that I referred to. Adele, oh, is this the Briar one? Mm-hmm. Yes. Adele Abdel Bari, who was a member of a terrorist organization affiliated with Al-Qaeda, was incarcerated in federal prison on his guilty pleas for the conspiracy crimes arising from his dissemination of propaganda leading up to the 1998 bombings of the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Now, so in 2020, Right before his scheduled release, he moved for compassionate release on the ground that continued 2020, guys, this is not very long ago, a compassionate release on the ground that continued confinement put it put him at high risk of contracting COVID-19 because he was 60 years old, suffered from asthma and obesity, you know, which were two aggravating conditions. Now, when he was released, he would be removed to the UK on an immigration detainer. The federal district court granted the motion about two weeks before his release date. On one hand, they recognized that he had committed terrible crimes, you know, as part of being part of Al Qaeda. But they said, but his participation is better characterized as spreading propaganda in coordination with the individuals who authored the attacks. That, too, was a serious crime, but it was not as serious as the crimes of his co-conspirators. Blah, 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 blah. They said... The sooner defendant's remaining days of imprisonment end, the greater the chance in the event that he contracts the virus and the virus proves fatal to him, that he could spend his last days or hours with his family rather than in a jail set. And they quoted from Portia's speech in Merchant of Venice, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power. The attribute to awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show like gods when mercy seasons justice. So they determined that in the Barry case, 
the earthly power of the United States should show mercy to season justice. Wow. So it worked. Yeah. That's that's really cool. I, I, I feel compelled to mention that the irony of that speech, which, of course, is very beautiful. Um, but it sure is interesting that she's asking Shylock. She's addressing that to Shylock and asking him to show mercy. And then it's only about 10 minutes later that she shows him no mercy whatso motherfucking ever whatso motherfucking ever but you know who knows anyway yeah, so well, shakespeare has also been used about oh, somewhere around 800 times in judicial opinions from states and federal courts around the united states so yeah well I've, I've, i'm i'm sure i'm sure that's the tip of the iceberg yeah man now, er- all about earlier it. Earlier, we said that uh, I said anyway that you that Shakespeare was kind of, was a bit of a naughty boy in his lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he he had more than one brush with the law. Now there's a, a legend that he got in trouble as a young man, and one of the reasons that he might have uh, he might have left Stratford was because he got in trouble with a, a, a local nobleman named Sir Thomas Lucy uh, for poaching on his estates. That is one of the stories that we most scholars question. It's definitely supposition it's a kind of a legend right is that where lucy goosey Um, comes from uh it could be it could be Uh, now this is not him getting in trouble per se but it's very interesting because among other things this story shows us that he where he lived for a while in london Uh, he was a lodger a lot he rented rooms which is interesting to me because he was quite wealthy by the late 1590s and had bought the second biggest house in stratford and all of that stuff but in 1598 maybe he liked the company uh, yeah, probably. And also, was con- pro- the, where, wherever he lived, uh, the places that we know that he lived were convenient for him to get to work. Right, of course. Uh, and he was a lodger in the Mountjoy's house um, at the corner of Silver and Monkwell Streets in London. You can actually still go there, although there's not much there left from Shakespeare's time. Uh, but uh, Christopher Mountjoy was a French Huguenot. He was a wig maker, and Shakespeare was a lodger in his house. And Mountjoy had an apprentice named Stephen Bellot, who was another Frenchman. And uh, there was a little romance, I guess, between Stephen Ballot and Mary Mountjoy, who was uh, uh, Christopher Mountjoy's daughter. His only daughter. His only daughter. And they were supposed to get engaged. But at the end of his apprenticeship, uh, Stephen Ballot left without proposing marriage to Mary. But when he returned, uh, it seems that Mrs. Mountjoy asked Shakespeare to make a match between Stephen and Mary. Um, I Shakespeare was a Yensa. It worked. It worked. But seven and a half years later, and this is the interesting part, because by now it's like 1605, Shakespeare was called into court to testify to all the facts leading up to the marriage. And after a family quarrel, Mr. Mountjoy declared that he would never leave Stephen and Mary a groat. And the son-in-law brought suit for the dowry. Shakespeare's testimony shows that he remembered Mrs. Mountjoy's commission and the part that he played in mating the pair, but he forgot the amount of the diary, dowry when it was to be paid. Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's that's con- convenient. That's convenient. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but the, but the the point is, it the one of the ways one of the things that we know best about Shakespeare are from legal documents. Yeah. Right? Because there's because there's so much missing, uh, and 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 obviously it it makes it very interesting that we know he was living. Uh, at the at this on Silver and Monkwell Street uh, between 1598 and 1604, and he wrote some of the most amazing plays ever written during that time. He wrote Hamlet during Othello, that time. He wrote right? Othello. He yeah. wrote so much, right? I mean, a ton. So if you're ever in London, you want to visit that street because it's kind of magic. But now let's talk about Shakespeare and some trouble. Right. Here's one of my favorite ones. And I'm actually a little shocked that I didn't know about this before this. (laughs) I have read I have read more Shakespeare biographies than you can shake a stick at. And I have never heard anybody mention this. And in fact, um, the author of this article uh, mentions that he is also surprised that uh, Shakespeare biographies tend to leave this out. Uh, or ignore it, right? This comes from an obscure legal paper unearthed from a set of ancient sheets of vellum called Sureties of the Peace, which are basically like Elizabethan restraining orders, right? And this surety of the peace, oh yes, yes, it's a restraining order. And this one not only names Shakespeare, but lists a number of his close associates. Um, And it really kind of shows Shakespeare in, in the role of kind of a thug. And it's pl- it's it suggests that he might have been involved with organized crime. So I'm going to quote it. It's very short. 
this this little restraining order uh, says, let it be known that William Waite craves sureties of the peace or a straining order against William Shakespeare, Francis Langley, Dorothy Sore, wife of John Sore, and Anne Lee for fear of death and so forth. Oh my rid God. of the attachment rid of the attachment issued by the sheriff of Surrey returnable the 18th of St Martin, right? Now, in the same collection of documents nearby there's a second writ, a second surety of the peace issued by Francis Langley who's mentioned in the first one for making similar charges against William Waite who took out the first restraining order, right? So, you have two restraining orders of people worried about somebody killing them, and Shakespeare is listed first in the in the first document, right? Now, first of all, remember, theater is not a respectable occupation at this time. Oh, hell also, no, remember masterless men? Exactly, exactly. And at this time, the time of this document, Shakespeare would have been very young and just starting out. So it's very possible that he could have been involved. I mean, the theaters were filled with criminals. They're filled with pickpockets and whores and all kinds of things. The only place I could get work was at the theater. <laughs> we, that's right. We've mentioned Philip Henslow before, right? Who was the 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 proprietor of the Lord Admiral's Men. Henslow's and, diary and his hand and his diary. And because of his diary, we know that he made a great deal of money as a brothel owner as well as a theater owner, right? So these there was a real crossover between the criminal underworld and the world of theater, right? So what this. What this suggests, this restraining order, especially since it named Shakespeare first, it's, it, 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 it suggests that he was the muscle yeah. in like a shakedown. Now, we also know that William Waite and Francis Langley were rivals, right? I mean, uh, Langley owned the Swan Theater. Right. And William William Waite was known to be the henchman of his uncle, who was uh, this corrupt magistrate, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it very strongly implies that Shakespeare, at least at this time, was working as basically a hired goon. And that that is just a, a view of Shakespeare that I had never seen before. And I cannot believe that it is not more widely known. He also, like, he was very litigious. Um, legal records show that he, he he's dodged from rented room to rented room for a while. He also defaulted on small tax payments yeah. in at least 1596, 1598, and 1599, which is very strange to me because he was so rich by then. Um, he also sued at least three other people for very small sums. So, you know, he was he he was kind of, possibly a dodgy character and now this is my this is my last thing that i want to talk about and it, it it's also it doesn't put shakespeare in the greatest light it's it's come to light fairly recently that shakespeare was probably a grain hoarder as because remember he was a wealthy landowner in right. uh, in stratford right so right. he had part of part of his property was you know was fields Right. Yep. And and after the, the famine of 1592 to 1593, there was a, a sequence of terrible harvests in England that that caused a terrible, a, a really bad famine, the worst famine. Right. Uh, in many, many years, especially in 1597 and 1598. And riots broke out all over the country. People there were reports of people trying to feed themselves by grinding bark buds and chaff into bread. This is oh. how hungry people were right now. Jesus. Shakespeare Shakespeare actually references famine in at least two plays. And, and, and the famine plays a major part in Pericles and even more importantly in Coriolanus. Yeah. And and Shakespeare and that's a, a lot of people time Coriolanus. Uh, uh, it, they place the writing of it around 1607 because that's the time of the Midland Revolt, sometimes called the Newton Rebellion, right? Which also involved famine. And Shakespeare is in those plays um, very sympathetic to the people who are angry at the nobility because of because of famine, right? However, and this is the sad part, these two scholars, Jane Archer and Richard Magraff Turley, they've uncovered archival materials that show that Shakespeare took advantage of famine to increase his wealth. Ugh. Having invested the bulk of his fortune in land, Shakespeare not only did his utmost to avoid taxes, but hoarded food in lean times and sold his produce to the poor at massively overinflated prices while running a lucrative sideline in usurious money lending, which well, P.S. was illegal. Where did you find All this of these info? Things. 
Oh, I've, I've known about the hoarding stuff for some time, but How? I found I found the work of Jane Archer and Richard Turley. Got it. Uh, okay. And it's it's really it's it's unfortunate. I mean, it's it's pretty much common knowledge at this point. Uh, like what I, I, I knew th- this taught me details about the hoarding that I didn't know. Uh, but I did know about the hoarding. I didn't know about him being a hired goon. Um, but it's a very it's a it it makes you read Pericles and especially Coriolanus differently, right? Because he does seem so sympathetic to the starving masses in Rome and Coriolanus. But if you if you think about like his activities as a person, yeah. it reads more like it reads more like a lame ass apology for his own crimes. So you know, between wow. between his lit, his litigious pr- uh, propensities his possibly working as a hired goon and his illegal money lending and hoarding and charging inflated prices to starving people. Um, I mean, that's some shit that we actually know about Shakespeare, you know, and, and, and none of it's good. I have no to say. man. That's a bummer. Yeah. It is kind of a bummer. <laughs> it is kind of a bummer. Jesus. Now I'm looking well, at all this stuff about like, Oh, the hoarding? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not so good. Well, and then, you know, then he, then, like, he finished it off by uh, dissing his wife in his will. I know, leaving her the second best bed. Right, well, and not only that, but the, the, the part to me that's most amazing about that, I think we've mentioned it elsewhere. Yes, it's famous that he left his wife his second best bed in his will, and, and you can make of that whatever you want. But there was a first draft of his will that didn't include her at all. Yes, I knew that. That's really the the, the draft that has the final draft that has uh, the 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 bequest to his wife in it uh, is is just an add on. And you know, again, so somebody convinced him, or he convinced himself maybe to uh, to do that. But you know, the, the the there are things that you can infer from that kind of thing, like you can you you might draw the conclusion that Shakespeare and Anne had a contentious relationship and that, you know, for whatever reason, but those, that's speculation. Here's what's not speculation. He hoarded grain and, and sold it to starving people at overinflated prices. That's a hard fact. That is a hard fact. That's fucked up. I'm it bummed. is fucked up. Yeah. Well, I'm bummed. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like I just found one in the, the LA times, Shakespeare was ruthless, what does it say? Ruthless profiteer and tax dodger. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tax dodger, uh, profiteer, and hired thug. You know what's funny? And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is that you like think about him as a hired thug, and it gives you like a totally different, f- yeah, physical. You know, uh, uh, like like I see a totally different picture in my head. Sure, sure. Well, you know, there's all this, you know, sweet swan of Avon, gentle, gentle Shakespeare, honey tongue Shakespeare, all of this stuff, right? Well, maybe not so much. Maybe not. Maybe not so much. But, you know, because that made me feel bad, I'm going to close here with a couple of quotes by lawyers getting back to the fact that he did indeed have an impressive knowledge and clearly understood the law in made that very clear in his plays. So uh, Daniel Kornstein, in his article called Shakespeare, the Unacknowledged Legislator, says all lawyers should read Shakespeare for, if nothing else, the fabled beauty and lasting power of his expression. Lawyers depend heavily on words and language. They must be sensitive to nuance and meaning. They will become better speakers and writers and thereby better advocates for having studied Shakespeare with an eye toward their own profession. Shakespeare's plays allow lawyers to grasp a relationship between human nature and the law. His works illuminate the basic aspects of law, such as the relationship between law and morals, the way revenge plays a role in the law, and how to think like a lawyer. The list of law-related topics in Shakespeare goes on and on, each one pushing lawyers to question our most basic premises of legal understanding. I love that. That's yeah. from a lawyer. I, and, and I think that's a good place to close because it really it really encapsulates what, a, what Shakespeare knew about law and how important he remains to law and lawyers everywhere. Agreed, except I have to tell you about 
Justice Stephen Breyer. Oh, right, right. right? This is the cherry on the Sunday. That's right. The cherry on the Sunday, because especially because he is retiring. Um, in 2009, at the University of Chicago's law school, there was a round table. They got a justice, a judge, a philosopher, and an English professor to discuss Shakespeare plays. And they let um, Justice Breyer choose them. He chose uh, As You Like It because he loved the play. He chose Measure for Measure because it basically is about the law, uh, although he says he's not sure that it is when he reads it, and Hamlet, because it's fucking Hamlet. You because know? Hamlet. That's right. Because Hamlet. So anyway, they they go on for about an hour and 15 minutes discussing these plays, uh, and it closes with... Uh, Professor Nussbaum, the, the academic, says, I'm going to give the last word to Justice Breyer. And Stephen Breyer says... My last words would be to say thank you for inviting me here to this roundtable and for this afternoon and to ask whether, after we have spent time reading these plays of Shakespeare and spent an afternoon discussing them, will it really help us to be better law students or better judges? And I think, well, it just might. It just might. So thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks, Stephen Breyer, for everything, really. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why when I brought this, when I found this, I was like, "We gotta give it up to Stephen Breyer. We'll have to, we'll have to tag him in this podcast." <laughs> why not? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, if you have anything you want to discuss with us about this episode or anything, as a matter of fact, you can send us an email at thebardcastudick at gmail dot com. Please visit our website at www.thebardcastudick dot com where you will find links to all of our episodes uh also uh a link to the article where we won best podcast 2021 for new york shakespeare that's and right also, bitches that's right bitches and also links for our favorite charities broadway cares equity fights aids and the actors fund right and uh and our patreon page as well we would be remiss not to mention also talk to us on social media that's right. And I'll link to our PayPal page. And yeah, you'll find links there for Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I think that's it. Oh, what do you think? I think that's a wrap. I think so. And remember, it's, it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you dick. <laughs> that wasn't terrible. <laughs> uh, uh, they'll be the judge. The preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2022, all rights reserved.